What's happening, everybody? Hope y'all are hanging in there amidst this bizarre world in which we find ourselves. Today's guest on the Crash Bang Boom Drumming Podcast is drummer Brendan Buckley. He's played with Shakira for over 20 years, worked with Perry Farrell, and many more, as well as worked as a producer, session drummer, and all that good stuff. So we were definitely able to touch on the many elements that allow someone to do such a thing, or things, plural, as it were. We also touch on his Instagram post at Drummer Plus Drummer, where Brendan has been teaming up with his fellow drummers for distant studio doer performances and no shortage of super cool collaborations to check out. So check out that page. You can also check him out at brendanbuckley.com. Crush Bang Boom Podcast can be found on iTunes Podcast, Spotify, Stitcher, Luminary, Google Play, Podbean, and Amazon Podcast, just to name a few. Feel free to check out any of the previous 200 plus episodes or give me a like, a subscription, and or a positive review. Support is appreciated. Sponsor shout out to the one and only New Orleans Record Press. If you're looking to release some vinyl, hit up NewOrleansRecordPress.com to check out all the electroplating, mastering, design, packaging, vinyl, coloring options, amongst a bunch of other NASA-like options that are primarily reserved for physicists. And they also got that real-time quote generator to add up all the good stuff and keep tabs. They also print 12 and 7-inch records in 150 and 180 gram variants, and they do small runs of 100 and larger runs of into the thousands. So hit them up, and that's NewOrleansRecordPress.com. Do please keep tabs on artists offering live streams, lessons, tutorials, and master classes from your favorite musicians, merch or physical releases that are for sale, as well as websites like SaveOurStages.com that are looking to provide some assistance to venues that are very much feeling the burn in this day and age. Help it any way you can. So here we go. Brendan Buckley, Crash, Bang, Boom. Crowds go mad with joy. Yes! All right, Brendan Buckley, how are you doing, man? How's it going? I'm doing really well, yeah. Thanks for the call. I'm happy to chat with you. Absolutely, man. I know we've been uh, missing signals. At least I was I was convinced we were doing this a month ago on the 28th of De- uh, December. Called you, you didn't answer, and I was like, oh, what happened? Then I looked at the message chain and realized you had indeed said January 28th, and then neither of us could figure out what exactly mountain time and Pacific time, how that works, because I just moved out here, and now I'm on a different time zone, and how that, where everyone else is relative to where I am is is confusing, man. It's confusing. Uh, we are drummers, and you know it's a little more difficult, but I, uh, I do think that uh, we did a good job double-checking triple checking and quadruple checking this appointment <laughs> so we made this happen yeah man we kept on checking in like are, are you sure we're on for tonight yes so we're good to go exactly man well it's a, a fairly redundant question on my behalf given uh, the covid times in which we find ourselves although uh, it does rear different answers which is why i keep asking it uh but uh have you what have you been doing with yourself since about march or so of uh, 2020 man Oh, just partying a lot. <laughs> I go out like uh, multiple times in the evening and just, uh, yeah, just going crazy. I'm just going crazy. It's never been, never been uh, having more social events than I am now. <laughs> I don't think I'm much different than many other people where I live in California, Los Angeles, and it's pretty locked down. It has been forever. And I'm abiding by all the recommended things of socially distancing myself and wearing masks and hand sanitizing and everything's closed for the most part. And so that being said, I'm quite a busy body by nature. So it it has been a challenge for me to feel useful 
in this environment. But I try to get out every morning and go for a jog or a bicycle ride or something. And then um, my morning is usually filled up with homeschooling my son, who's eight. Ah. Uh, so I'm, I'm basically his school teacher from about 8.30 to 2 o'clock. And then I try to either, you know, do some kind of creative thing in my studio from that point on, or if I don't have enough time, I'll reserve that for the weekends and I'll just do, you know, marathon sessions throughout the weekend, uh, Saturday and Sunday to get everything done. Right. But that's usually my, uh, my routine. I, I've only done less than a handful of sh- live shows since last March, uh, just a few live streaming shows. Mm-hmm. Other than that, uh, just lots of home recordings and a few recordings in studios, but super careful where there's only like two people in the whole, whole entire studio, like yeah. a drummer and, a, and an engineer, and that's it. Right. I've done a few of those and uh, a bit of teaching, a lot of uh, Zoom chatting with friends and colleagues, and that's about it. Yeah. I know one of the things you've been doing, uh, which I've been getting a kick out of, is the dual drumming series that I've been uh, been seeing on the Instagram feed. You posted on yours, but for the people that are listening to it, uh, tell them about the the specific uh, Instagram page where you post all of them as well. Great. Well, anyone who's interested can follow me at Brendan Buckley, uh, but I also have a, a side page called Drummer Plus Drummer, which yep. just features a weekly one-minute duet that I do with uh, a different drummer friend of mine every week, uh, uh, someone new, a different peer. And very fun for me because I originally had an idea of doing this as a live show, a monthly event in L.A., Mm -hmm. where maybe any touring drummer friend of mine, a guy from either be it Germany or New York or San Francisco, if they're in town, let me know, and I'd book a gig at a bar, and I'd set up two drum sets that we could just play for an hour or two mm-hmm. to a handful of people. I thought that'd be a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it, it, I, that didn't happen because uh, then the lockdown, uh, uh, the pandemic hit us. So I said, well, I wonder if there's a way to recreate that idea, mm-hmm. the vibe, virtually. So I, I had the, uh, the idea, and I ran it by a few friends of mine. They're like, totally. Because I didn't want to bother anybody if they're busy or something. So I, I, I did it in a way where it's, it's a lot of fun for me and the other person and super chill and low-key. So, yeah, and, it, and it, it tries to basically encompass what I like about playing with other drummers or percussionists. You know, I like guys mm-hmm. who listen. I like guys who are creative, guys who have their own voice, guys who I would like to do live with anyway. You know, I would I would actually have fun sitting next to them and 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 doing this uh, in person. Uh, that's who I want to do it with virtually, too. So, right. It's been a lot of fun. Yeah. And so far, so good. Yeah, man. You've uh, hooked up with a few people that I'm familiar with and or have interviewed on this podcast, one of which is Aaron Comas of the, the Spin Doctors. It's funny, man, during um, all of this, once all of this happened, you know, he has his own studio. Uh, so where he can just go there and, and do his thing. Uh, I think he's got his engineer buddy. And th- so the two of them could just go do whatever they want. And they didn't really have to work around anyone's clock. But I w- at the time had a rehearsal space in a five or six story giant building. I don't know how many rehearsal spaces were in there, but it was pretty much locked down, but the doors weren't locked. So I would go in there and it was just a ghost town, but it was so weird because it's in this industrial section of uh, of sort of like 
like Bushwick, uh, mm-hmm. Williamsburg area of Brooklyn. And I would see Aaron every day because he was going in and practicing and he just had his own studio so he could just go do his thing. And I was in there walking up the steps, uh, going into this ghost town, industrial, crazy six story building just so I could play drums. But it was hilarious, man. I would see him like clockwork. It was so bizarre. Yeah, that sounds very post-apocalyptic. Totally. It really <laughs> but yeah, was. Aaron, Aaron, Aaron was a joy. I've been a fan of Aaron's playing forever. I, I, I wrote about it because I, I grew up in New Jersey, so the Spin Doctors were huge in New Jersey before sure. they were even huge. They were right. a local band, so I used to see them in high school. Totally. And I used to love his playing, and then, uh, you know, through mutual friends, we hooked up much later. Uh, but yeah, yeah. Uh, Craig McIntyre was on the show and he did, he did a duet with me. Craig's one of my dearest friends and he's one of the people that made me think that this would be fun because I have actually duo drum jammed with him in the past and his pocket is, is deeper than the ocean, you know? So, (laughs) so fun to play with him. Yeah. You know, there are people that are actually a a joy to play with, Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, and then there are other people who it's kind of like people, they're throwing marbles at your face, but, um, yeah, so he's a good example of someone who I I would do it with live anyway. So it, it's, it's so enjoyable. And Aaron's another one. You're right. That's awesome, man. Uh, any records that you've been digging uh, or, and or have been in heavy rotation since all of this uh, strange world fell upon us, man? I know I've been kind of obsessing over a few that have lasted for a month or two, and then I'm on to another one that I'm obsessing over that. But a few of them have been kind of bizarrely apropos for how bizarre the world is, it seems. Well, uh, why don't you go first? Tell me something that you're, you're obsessing over. You know, I went through a really weird phase where I, I was just reverting back to like my teenage thrash obsession. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was just listening to like Exodus and Exhorter because uh, I, I grew up near New Orleans. And so I just remember hearing all that stuff like like when I was growing up in the late 80s and early 90s. And uh, I kind of just revisited it. And, I, and I've been kind of been going down a thrash rabbit hole, if you will. Uh, and I've, mm-hmm. I've been doing a good bit of that. Definitely. I noticed on some of the recordings that you did, uh, you had an Iron Maiden shirt on. I definitely went through a phase as well where I was just rocking Iron Maiden <laughs> heavily, whether it was Power Slave or Somewhere in Time or, you know, any of those, even Seventh Son of a Seventh Son. And then of course, before that, but like those three in particular, I found that I was listening to a lot. Mm-hmm. Oh, and I got a, a crazy obsession with ELO, and I was like obsessively listening to like five or six of those records that I have on vinyl, uh, just tripping out on Jeff Lynne's orchestration, his vocals, his sense of melody, just his pure genius, and mm-hmm. and uh, a couple of Zappa records in particular that you know definitely one size fits all. Just playing that and completely mm-hmm. tripping out that a group of individuals could ever execute that to tape. You know, it's just fucking amazing. Mm-hmm. So yeah, somewhere between yeah. Zappa, <laughs> ELO, some Iron Maiden and some thrash, and then probably some seventies funk shit. Uh, that, that's been my jam since all this bizarre shit went down. Man, I, I want to come over to your place and just do a vinyl party. This sounds like fun. Let's do it. That would be awesome. But, uh, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that all sounds great. Yeah, uh, Iron Maiden is a band that I adored in, like, fifth grade. I loved Iron Maiden, the kind of thing where you draw Eddie on your your, your notebook cover. And I had every album from the first record through, uh, yeah, Seventh Son of a Seventh Son might have been the last one I bought. Yeah. But I had all those. 
and then um, a good story is they used to have this weekly jam night at a Lucky Strike bowling alley here in Hollywood. Uh-huh. And uh, all these great players would show up and sit in and do different songs, you know. Mm-hmm. It wasn't like a jazz jam or a blues jam. It was like, uh, do you know YYZ? Sure. And you go up and, and a couple heavy, heavy players would, would do their version of YYZ. Awesome. And sometimes they call you in advance to say, hey, uh, would you be down to do maybe this song or this song? And I'm, yeah, I know all of those. Great. <laughs> so they like to invite people who have, have a decent catalog of tunes in their mind already. Right. But I remember the the MD said, "You want to? Are you coming down the jam tonight?" I'm like, "Sure, I'll come by." He's like, "You want to do um, uh, Run to the Hills?" And I'm like, "Do I want to do Run to the Hills?" <laughs> My God, I, I I said, "I beg you, let me do that." And then we I came down and I sat in and I played Run to the Hills by Iron Maiden, and man, my face was hurting because I was smiling so much during that song. It was man, what a joy for my like my fifth grade boy to come out of me and just like be be playing those fills note for note i'm like it's it was it was a joy yeah man. but uh yeah uh thrash uh i don't know i mean i listened to a lot of anthrax when i was younger yeah. um <laughs> things too, like that yeah. i mean i, I was in the i was into hardcore and and punk rock music also and and a little bit of metal so that thrash kind of you know blended some of those worlds between metal and hardcore for me sure. But, you know, nowadays, if I'm at the gym, which I don't go to the gym anymore because they're all closed, but I would normally listen to either Mashuga or oh, yeah. Gojira. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, God. So those two bands, I, I really like their records a lot. Um, oh, they're incredible. Just great parts, great drumming, great parts. And uh, But I have to admit, when I'm now I just jog around my neighborhood, and I've been listening to this uh, artist named Charlie XCX. Huh. She's just a pop singer, uh-huh. but uh, the drum the, the the drum sounds are vicious on this new record, and it's all programmed. Mm-hmm. But they're super distorted, like Nine Inch Nails kind of distorted cool. drum sounds. Yeah. And I'm just like, I, I dig that too. I'm I'm as into like really good drum programming as I am into really good drumming. That's why I've always loved Nine Inch Nails and Massive Attack and mm-hmm. groups like that, where I think the drums are killer, whether they're live or not. Right. My son is going through a Star Wars phase, so we're just we just basically have John Williams on all the time. Like the, the, every Star Wars soundtrack is going crazy in my household wow. right now, and and that's that's good music too. Absolutely, that's super cool, man. I do this thing where I I made him his own playlist in Spotify. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's we call it his jam. So I'm like, you know, whenever he wants to play his jams, but his jams are great. Nice because he listens to Queen. He looks he listens like. He listens to the Beatles, Zeppelin, Queen, Rolling Stones, ACDC. And this is, you know, a kid, but he's just heard it through me. And he's like, I like that song. Right. All right. So his musical mix is good for me. It works for me, too. So vicariously, I live through that. Yeah, for sure. One of the cool things about doing that for him, and it's something that I do, I generally, at the tail end of the year, kind of make a mixtape, so to speak, the same way I used to do with cassette, actual cassette tapes back in the day, uh, of just my favorite songs of whatever you know, whatever year it was. But that's something that you can do for him to sort of uh, chronicle each year of his life and the songs that he was into, and he can revisit those playlists and check them out to see what he was into. Yeah, that is a good idea. I do make a list of favorite albums every year because I don't want to fall out of, I don't want to be one of those like uh, get off my lawn kind of guys who says uh, there's, they don't make good music anymore. Right. So I make sure I check out every year I go through and I listen to like the hundred best releases and I listen to them at least once from top to bottom. And, mm. 
and check out all, all hip hop, pop, country, folk, jazz, a lot of different things. So I, I like the new Deftones record yeah. that that came out this year. That was cool. Yeah. Um, what what else did I like? I like this EP by a friend of mine, and they call it they, his his band is called Atwater Punk. Mm-hmm. It's the dr- it's the drummer for Miley Cyrus. His name is Stacy Jones. Okay, but he's like a he's a great all around musician producer, and he plays guitar and sings. And he used to he used to be in a band called American Hi Fi. Okay, but yeah, he has got a little EP with his wife, and it's great. I can't remember. It's like three or four songs, but it's called Atwater Punk. Okay. I really like that group. Nice. Um, yeah. Uh, I love everything Brian Blade and Bill Stewart do. So whenever they release any record, <laughs> yeah. that's always in my list. Yeah. Brian Blade is a fellow Louisiana guy. I believe he's north, like up in Shreveport, because I studied uh, with this guy, Leon Anderson, uh, at Southeastern, uh-huh. who also taught in New Orleans. And uh, I did uh, about three or so semesters studying with him, just like jazz independent stuff. And he grew up with Brian Blade. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he was a, he was an absolute wizard of jazz independence. I believe, strangely enough, I should have looked it up prior to this because it's something we'll touch on later. I know you went to the University of Miami. He definitely teaches somewhere in Florida now. And uh, I guess it would have been mm-hmm. after, you probably had already come and gone. But I, I, I think he mm-hmm. might even be at the University of Miami now. I got to check it out. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's just funny you said Brian Blade. And I, it, made, it me, immediately made me think about studying with, with my guy Leon Anderson. It's so bizarre. Cool. Well, I'll check it out. I'll, I'll, see, I'll see where he's at. Yeah, man. Have you been uh, practicing anything in particular on the, on the kit uh, that maybe you had postponed while you were touring and being more busy with other things and just life and whatnot? And has, uh, have you been able to sort of focus in on any particular thing that, that was uh, waiting to be addressed with playing necessarily? Yeah, that, that's a good point. Yeah, I have. I guess one of the things I've tried to do about being proactive in such a, a miserable 2020 year is to try to go through my list of things I keep on putting off uh-huh. and giving myself very few excuses to put it off anymore. Right. So if I if I promised myself I was going to learn this beat or this technique or this groove or finish this demo for this artist, because I also produce on the side, so I'm like, man, I've been promising this guy I was going to do this song or this session or whatever mm-hmm. I, I i just been kind of like checking these things off the list uh, but so as far as practicing let me i'm in my studio right now let me take a, ga- a gander at my kit <laughs> yeah. let's see i i've done a lot of things like more inventory style things like like going through all of my snares and you know tuning them and changing the heads or selling them if, if they're not right for me anymore same thing with right toms kick drums cymbals percussion instruments i i kind of went i did a full inventory uh and made sure that everything i have is useful and has a unique sound or it's or it's going you know it's going for sale right you know i I don't i don't want to have six bass drums that are tuned exactly the same and all sound the same right i want to have like one with no hole in the front one you know one with uh with the concert uh, with like no front head at all. And, uh, you know, one with a small center hole, one with a small uh, di- like off center mm-hmm. hole, things like that. Mm-hmm. That way you can, you can swap things out and get different sounds very quickly. And the same thing with snare drums, you kind of go for different, that low chunky sound, the high pingy sound and everything in between. Mm-hmm. And therefore you, then you have all your go-to sounds without having to even retune or re or change anything. So, I did that as and shedding. I've been doing a lot of shedding, actually. Um, a lot of flowing exercises, like hand foot, uh, single double kind of flowing exercises, 
not necessarily get blazing 64th note uh, fills going on, but <laughs> yeah. just really to, to be able to get around the kit and not repeat myself and mm. not play licks per se, but just to be able to improvise and express myself around the kit, no matter what the sticking, no matter what hand or drum or whatever I'm on, they just keep moving, keep moving and come out uh, in different groupings in different places. It's hard to explain, you know, verbally, but basically I've just been going through this series of exercises that just get like to break down some barriers in, in my uh, singles, doubles, left, right. All I don't, I just don't want to play rudiments anymore. Right. So I'm basically trying to come up with come up with exercises to eliminate rudiments and just get to the base of all singles, doubles, hand, foot, left, right, everything. Mm-hmm. I, I do work on my double bass drumming uh, more now than ever. Uh, purely because it's a passion project for me. Yeah. I find it, I've always found it, uh, the hardest, uh, part of my drumming to just be really proficient with. I started it late in life. My hands, I've talked about it before. If I take a break, my hands can be pretty good when I get back into it. Uh, but it's just something, one of the, one of the drummers that I interviewed, he kind of had a great saying about it. And he said, uh, the, it's as if the brain of his feet is just slower than his hands. <laughs> that has been, my, that's been my experience, man. And, uh, it's, I could, I feel like I could work on it like f- until I'm l- leave this earth and I would still have stuff to work on with that. It's been really t- a tough attribute for me. Yeah, I agree. And I think that well it goes for every, every aspect of drumming. I feel like I can leave this earth and still have stuff to work on. Of course. But I do believe that when it comes to hand technique or foot technique, as drum set players, we spend way too much time on our hand technique and way too little time on our foot technique. Right. Like, we have drum pads. We'll sit in a hotel room and play on a drum pad, but we don't do anything with our feet, Correct. you know? And we're always thinking, as long as I can do all these choppy things with my hands, I'm good. But a drum set is a four-limbed experience. Mm-hmm. So I really believe in getting the legs involved, uh, getting the legs involved when you're warming up prior to a show. Yeah getting legs involved when you're practicing, getting your legs involved in all sorts of ways. And that's why I love having a double pedal on a kit at all times, even if it's a gig that it's absolutely ridiculous to be playing double pedal stuff. I still have a double pedal, even just to warm up prior to the show, Uh because I think having a double pedal gives you great symmetry. If you have a kick with your right foot and a hi-hat with your left foot, you're going to be doing two different things and they feel different. Mm And, uh, you know, you're asking your, your ankles and uh, your feet to do two different jobs. But if you put two feet on a double pedal, you're kind of it's, you're kind of asking your left foot to catch up to your right foot in many ways. Yeah. So I think it's a great way to work on your symmetry of your posture, symmetry of your seated position, symmetry of your, your legs. Are, are you Is one heel higher than the other? Mm-hmm. Uh, my friend likes to call it stiletto heel drumming when your heels are super high and you're just stomping down. <laughs> yeah. uh, or, or is one foot flat-footed, one foot up? And mm-hmm. you, re- I, I really think there's so much to work on just by doing exercises with the double pedal that don't involve speed metal or thrash music at all. Mm-hmm. Just doing simple exercises with your feet. It's a great warm-up, the same way you would warm up on a, on a practice pad with your hands. You can do it with your feet yeah. on two pedals. So I really like doing that. I've been working a lot on getting my um, beater off technique real solid again. I used to do yeah. that really well years ago. And then I just got into this phase where I just wanted to bury the beater and be super accurate with that. Mm-hmm. 
And I and I and I went through that phase. I really enjoy it. I really like it. And I'm not. I have no problem with that. I have no problem with drummers who play that way. But if you're playing on a 24-inch wide-open bass drum with no pillow on it, bearing the beater sounds pretty garbagey. So mm-hmm. that's why I really wanted to make sure. Or playing on a small 18-inch bebop kit, also that sounds really weird when you bury the beater. Right. So I wanted to get the beater off technique back to where I like it again. So I'm working on that. I've been really working on getting my left hand matched grip to be way stronger than it has been in the past. I've always felt like my hands are pretty matched already, mm-hmm. although I play traditional and matched. I feel like there's, I don't feel super weak, but I've challenged my left hand to be able to play exactly what my right hand does now, and that's hard. Right. So I do a lot of ambidextrous exercises. Not that I ever want to be Simon Phillips, but just if I can play a certain cowbell pattern with my right hand, I switch. I switch my hands, you know, and back and forth. Playing ghost notes with my right hand on the snare while playing accents with my left hand on an instrument, you know. So my right hand's being forced to play ghost notes and my left hand's being forced to be, to pronounce really clean, loud singles and doubles, you know. So I do that exercise a lot. Nice. On and on and on. Yeah. You've you've, you've started the motor mouth in me. (laughs) No, I I was curious about it. And we'll we'll talk back uh, to even when you were studying and how some of that might be filtering itself out and, you know, when you're playing presently. But I would say you do have good independence. I've watched some of the stuff that you play in. I think melodically, uh, your separation of limbs was good. There was a couple uh, two or a few, I would say, uh, of videos that I watched of you on your Instagram page where I was like, that is, uh, it would be challenging, uh, for me to play that the way you played it essentially. <laughs> oh, thank you. I appreciate that. I mean, I think if you played, if you ever played classical music, like in an orchestra, there's a lot of times you have to do things left hand lead or reach with your left hand and play something accurately. Mm. You know, drum set allows you to start to have a dominant hand and a weak hand. Mm-hmm. If your left hand's only going to go, pa, 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 pa for a couple of years, then you're going to get really good at going two and four with your left hand. And then your right hand's going to get good at going tink, 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 or something. Mm-hmm. You know, and then you're going you're gonna to grow this dissonance between your two hands where they're not connected anymore. But if you're, I mean, if you're playing some kind of percussion ensemble, classical music, you know, some kind of different kind of world instrument, then you start to realize, oh man, I need to get my left hand together to play this thing mm-hmm. and play this thing. So sometimes I look at a drum set and I say to myself, what if this weren't a drum set? What if this were just an amalgamation of percussion instruments? How would I play it differently? And it's a fun challenge for me to do that, like to set things up but slightly differently or just to sit down and change my, like a little paradigm shift and just look at it a little differently. Mm-hmm. And then come up with some patterns that might not be what you would normally do if you were just playing ACDC songs or something. Sure, sure, man. Reverting back to some of the guys that I studied with, um, one of the sort of light bulb moments that I had, and not necessarily at the time when I was doing it, because I was kind of asking myself why I was even going through this and if I'd ever use it. But uh, I went through a good bit of uh, beyond just sort of jazz independent stuff, sort of uh, Afro-Cuban and uh, Brazilian influences and applying that to the drum set, which are not traditionally drum set, uh, you know, instrumentation. And uh, Mm -hmm. it's the separation of limbs and sort of the melodic aspects of separate the limbs to sort of create this whole part that maybe was originally a few people playing a very specific part. 
that is actually kind of where I think I got the most independence uh, of my time. And I'm going on 30 years, I guess, of drumming at this point. But I do recall that as being especially challenging, getting myself in that space. But uh, it's definitely something that I'm glad that I, that I went through. And it's, it's, it's helped me later on, I think. Oh, sure. That's a great education is to, uh, if you dig a certain style of music, like world music or something, and you realize, uh, oh, I can play a samba on the drum set. Uh, well, that's not really what it samba sounds like. You start to, you go back and you see where it came from with mm -hmm. a, a surdo, pandero, you know, tam, tamborim and all these different instruments. They're, they're hand percussion equivalent. Exactly. And you learn how to play all those patterns. Then it, then you put it back together again. You're like, oh, I was playing a weird, <laughs> super gringo version of a samba. Now I get it. Yeah. And you can go through that with basically almost every, you know, world pattern is like that, that you learn every Afro-Cuban pattern that you're like, oh, I got this together. Oh, what what does that really sound like when three masterful, you know, percussionists play that? Right. It sounds more like this. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, now you can go back to the kit. And, approach it with that type of balance and independence and, and uh, whatever instrumentation. And it makes a lot more sense. Mm -hmm. It's not like you, you can't learn it on the kit or you're screwed if you only learn it on the kit, but it's fun to have that uh, extra level to you where you study the individual parts also, mm -hmm. and then you bring it back to the kit and it makes a lot more sense. Sure. And you know, you know what to prioritize uh, as far as what, what parts are more important and which ones you can leave out. Absolutely, man. Uh, we were talking a little bit about University of Miami, and I know you went down there at some point, and you mentioned growing up in Jersey. Uh, what, did you grow up in a musical household, and or what led you to to the University of Miami in the first place? Uh, yeah, I would say, yeah, I grew up born and raised in New Jersey. I don't know if my my household was musical in the sense that my parents weren't professional musicians, but they loved music. We had a stereo on in the living room all the time. Mm -hmm. My parents sang, they had a big record collection. They, so they taught me a love for music, uh, going as far back as, you know, things like jazz and Frank Sinatra, Tony Bennett, guys like that. And then fifties, uh, like doo-wop, early rock and roll, R and B and, uh, Motown and then, you know, Beatles and things like that. They had a lot of that going on in the house. And then I also loved music a lot. Uh, MTV was huge back then, so I used to watch MTV incessantly oh, yeah. and look at lots of rock bands and new wave bands and things like that. And I had a lot, I skateboarded a lot. I break dance, so those are <laughs> music cultures too. You know, totally. you you get hip hop records and 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 hardcore records through those environments. Right. So my my school had a band program so I, I played piano and trumpet wow. and then at a certain point I said you know what I actually want to be in a rock band yep. and there's not a lot of trumpets in rock <laughs> bands so I bought a used pearl export off of a neighbor and uh, that was maybe I was about the age 14 at the time and I started playing in garage bands at that point and that's where it really it really kind of sunk in I'm like this is fun oh yeah so I went to University of Miami because when I was 18, it was time to go to college, and I didn't know what to do for a major. I had decent academics, but no real interest in anything other than drums. So I I kind of 
tricked my parents into letting me audition for music schools for a year and, and do that. So they let me audition for a bunch of different music schools and uh, all the ones that you might know. Yeah. And I wound up choosing Miami because um, the program seemed great to me. It was a cool city. It was a program that wasn't too big as far as the student-teacher ratio. Mm-hmm. It was a music school that was in, a, in the heart of a big city, so I thought I would see a lot of great players, and I would hopefully start gigging at some point down there. So I went down there when I was 18. I loved it, uh, and um, it, was, it was a great choice. I don't know if my life would have been different if I did not go there, but it probably would have been very different if I did not go there. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, I loved it. It's funny that uh, when you talk about my parents and ask if it was a musical household, I found out much later that my dad had a professional doo-wop group when he was 16 oh. and that Phil Spector, Phil Spector um, produced his first album <laughs> and he had this little uh, vinyl of it. I'm like, what? <laughs> That's wild. He told, me that when, he told me that when I was like 25. I'm like, how come you never told me this? <laughs> But yeah, so maybe that's where the love of music came from. But yeah, right, right. Well, you were at Miami, uh, and you, you had mentioned symphonic percussion. Uh, did did Jason Sutter, who I interviewed and who we we both know, obviously, uh, was he teaching there? Uh, and 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 symphonic percussion was he one of your teachers? Yeah, he wasn't one of my teachers, but let's see if I remember correctly. My junior year. He transferred from University of North Te- Texas to Miami uh, to get his graduate degree. Uh, I think he was going for his master's at that yeah. point. So he was he was an upperclassman, and I was, uh, I think, a junior in, the, going, in a bachelor's program. So I met him. We became friends, and we did play in several percussion ensembles together. We hung out together. I learned a lot from him. Uh, and then he, then he graduated and left school, um, and moved to Boston, but we stayed in touch when he was living in Boston. I played on his, on his master's recital when uh, I think we played the, I was, I, I played some percussion instruments on his master's recital. And then he moved from Boston to LA and then I moved to LA. So we hooked up out here. Nice. And even cooler than that is Jason helped me buy my house, which I have right now. <laughs> really? he, he was also a a part-time realtor, and I was like trying to buy a house in LA, and I couldn't find one. I couldn't find one I liked, and I mentioned it to Jason. He's like, "Dude, drop all those other guys. I'm your guy." And sure enough, in, in, in a matter of a couple of months, he's like, "I found the house for you." He's a very confident guy, if, if you don't know. Right. So he was like, "He's like, come over. I found the house for you." And I came over, and he was right. I'm like, "Dude, I love this place." So he helped me buy my house, and he's a great dude. Amazing. Wow, mm-hmm. man. Uh, as far as, as what you were studying, it's, and it's something that I like to uh, talk to people about because, again, sort of in reference to my own education um, with, with academia and college and drumming and whatnot, uh, it, there wasn't much of a emphasis on soloing, uh, whereas I think maybe certain cultures, like maybe more like Berkeley or some of these other uh, colleges, I think have pretty intensive cultures of uh, that's pretty steeped in like soloing and whatnot, and uh, and maybe even re- going forward to what we've seen over the last few years since the advent, I think, of the uh, guitar center drum offs and whatnot, and you know uh, the kids coming out of the church and this and that and the other, and what is called gospel chops. And you mentioned sixty fourth notes, and uh, you know just getting to thirty second notes alone. Uh, I'm just wondering if there was much of an emphasis uh, on soloing and that. 
uh, w- with with you in school because it wasn't for me. So I've always tried to catch up on that aspect of playing. I feel like. Uh, it's it's an interesting question, and no one's ever asked that before about uh, my time in school. The main professor at the University of Miami is a great dude named Stephen Rucker. And, uh, of course, we had to – you had to, from freshman year, you had to be able to trade fours and trade eights and things like that, trade 16s. Mm. And anyone who doesn't know what that means, that means, you know, at a certain part of the song, the saxophone player would do a four-measure solo, and then you do a four-measure solo, and you go back and forth for a while. Mm. And you can't lose each other. You have to count. So it becomes a common thing where whatever you're jamming with anyone in college, starting from freshman year, you have to learn how to trade fours, trade eights, trade 16s, trade 30 seconds, uh, like basically 30, 32 bar form. Mm-hmm. So you do get that together. And that's, that's your entry level. And then at a certain point, Stephen Rucker, the teacher, would have us just do open solos, but open solos over the song form. Mm-hmm. So whatever the song is, you have to play the song right. on the drums and make it melodic enough where people know where you are. Mm-hmm. So it could be anything. If you're picking a jazz song like Autumn Leaves or Stella by Starlight or whatever sure. you're going to pick, you know, Straight No Chaser, mm-hmm. you have to play it with the right amount of bars and make sure that everyone can follow where you are in the song mm-hmm. by either playing motifs or, you know, melodies or something like that. Yeah. And that became a good exercise because you would see guys who can play great drum fills. Uh, you would see them fall apart Absolutely. when you ask them to keep, to keep a song form together. Right. Like, okay, now now just do a drum solo and do four loops of a 32-bar form. Mm-hmm. And then you're like, what? No, I'm just going to play a solo. No, no, no. You have to play, the, you have to play a 32-measure song four times and then come out on beat one. And, and if you can do that, then you pass this test. Right. So that was a great lesson for everyone to learn how to play solos a little more melodically than just, Definitely. you know, blistering, blistering chops and not caring where beat one is. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that, that is ingrained in the curriculum. Mm-hmm. But also, I went a long time ago, so it wasn't, it was a different era of music. It was before the guitar center drum off right. and things like that. So maybe they're, te- maybe they're teaching that now. Maybe they're, Guitar Center Drum Off 101 class. I'm not sure. Yeah. From what I've seen, I think that it has started, and maybe by virtue of the students asking questions about what that is and the the faculty or the teachers starting to then have to inform themselves or just revert back to their Vinnie Caliuta influence or whatever it is, Mm -hmm. I would say that I'm starting to see that be more of a thing within a curriculum and or maybe a specific person that's, 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 that's there. Uh, I think I think it's more of a thing, and I you it would have to be tied to the internet, the guitar center drum offs, et cetera, et cetera, and the cycle of both kids asking those questions, et cetera, et cetera. You know, I think that's a thing. Yeah, I mean there there are good and bad aspects to every style of music and every genre and every fad, mm-hmm. and I do try to look at things like is the vocabulary interesting. Mm-hmm. I might not love a style of music that much or a style of playing too much, but I will look at the vocabulary and I'll say, is that fill, the voicing of the fill, the, the instruments used or the, the, the combination interesting enough to be used in other styles of music? So I don't know. Like, for instance, I would have never years ago done a build, a 16-note uh, build, on a floor tom and a hi-hat. 
I would do it. I would do it on a rack tom on a floor or a snare drum on a floor. Mm-hmm. That was very common for me to do a build. Sure. But now people do it on the hi hat and floor tom. It's just a, it's just a certain voicing that people do now, mm-hmm. and uh, that comes out of a more modern thing. There's a lot of examples of that that are very subtle, but things that were not done 20 years ago, and now everyone does mm-hmm. it. And I try to pick up on those things because sometimes they're interesting. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, oh, that's kind of a cool, cool way to, to, you know, reverse your hands and do this thing or do that thing. You don't have to always love every genre or every style of music or every form of musicality to still take some elements and bring it into your style. So, yeah, I think there is a validity to, to putting that in the curriculum is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Assuming you've gone through a, a phase of rudiments with with metronome, et cetera, most most drummers have. I've found recently that at 200 BPMs, for instance, I can pretty cleanly play perididdles, the double perididdles, and back and forth. But the second I go to 205, for instance, it starts getting sloppy. And while I'll likely push that sort of out of my own curiosity, and I'm not even sure it'll be applicable for anything beyond that, uh, is that something that you've experienced while maybe pursuing technique, speed, et cetera, that you've ultimately asked yourself, how far are you willing to go considering that you may not even really use it that much? <laughs> you know? Uh-huh. That's also a really great question. I don't practice the kind of drumming that some people might call uh, athletic drumming or circus drumming Mm -hmm. or things like that. Mm -hmm. I do love chops. Believe me, I love chops. And I love, you know, speed. And what I love more than that is efficiency, tone, Mm -hmm. musicality. Mm -hmm. So whatever I practice, I'll push it. I'll push it hard and I'll push it far. But the minute it starts to sound like really crappy and i think i could never use this on a session or a gig because it's starting to sound crappy yeah then i back it down a little bit yeah so i don't i don't play anything to the point where it doesn't sound good anymore or seamless or even Mm -hmm. even is a big thing for me like consistent and even uh so i'll but i'll make note of that i'm like oh i like this thing but once i get to 140 i might have to switch to this other thing because this you know, A isn't working at that tempo. And I will try to, to push the push the boundaries of those tempos over time, but it's not my main goal. My main goal is to make sure things sound really good. So if I have to do it between two hands or I can do it with one hand or I do it in singles or I do it with doubles, I make those decisions based on whatever sounds the best at that tempo. I, I very seldomly just try to force things to work mm-hmm. beyond beyond their limit. Yeah. Yeah, there are certain times where you have to make exceptions, like an up-tempo ride pattern. you got to just – unfortunately, you have to just shed that. You have to shed it and shed it and get it faster and faster right. if you're going to play. Because you can't just say, well, I'm not. I'm going to do it with two hands. Ting, ticka, ding, ticka, ding. No one's going to play a jazz ride pattern with two hands, right? <laughs> ting, ticka, ding, ticka, ding, ticka, ding. Right, left, right, right, left, right, right, right. No, you have to play one with one hand. Ting, ticka, ding, ticka, ding, ting, ticka, ding, ticka, ding, 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 ticka, ding, ding, right? So that's something you do if you want to get good at that. You need to practice, 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 and get the hands going, get the muscles, get the bounce, get the wrist flick, whatever combination of things you have to get going to make that sound good at really fast tempos. Yeah. But a lot of other forms of drumming, you don't have to do that. You just have to come up with a pattern that sounds good mm-hmm. and sounds consistent and uh, you know with good tone. 
So there's no reason to crush extra notes in there if it's going to make the, the groove sound worse. Right. Yeah, I think that's a great distinction. I've asked myself that question itself. It's like if it's sounding this bad and it's already pr- most likely beyond uh, BPM-wise what I would be playing in the first place, other than for my own curiosity, I don't know that it's the most applicable thing to even be spending that much time upon, you know? Okay, yeah, another good example. You had a paradiddle example, but here's another good example on the drum. So it would be you're doing a, a kick snare hi hat groove, and the hi hat is uh, right hand sixteenth notes. Like that, mm-hmm. right? And you can, and then the, then the artist is like, let's do it like uh, eight, B, eight BPM faster. You're like, oh, okay. That's pretty cool. How about like? Can we do it at like, uh, I don't know, let's do it, bump it up another 6 BPM. Right. And you're like, oh, my God. At a certain point, my right hand, it could still play it, but it's starting to sound shitty. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Maybe I should switch this to right, left, right, left, alternating hi-hat part. Right. You know, it, my ego might say, no, 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 you got to muscle this out. You got mm-hmm. But part of me would say, what's more important is that I play this song well. So the artist likes the drum pattern at this tempo. Not that I proved to myself that I could bust these 16 notes out with one hand, you know, that's, you know, maybe that's something I could work on over time in the practice room. But in this moment, what's more important is to play the pattern and make it sound good today. So I don't get fired. And that might mean switching to a right, left, right, left, alternating hi-hat pattern, mm-hmm. which makes everybody happy. You know, that's that's an example. Exactly. Yeah. I, our, uh, another guy that I've spoken to and Todd Suckerman had a really great thing on one of his Drumeo uh, videos where he talked about exactly what you're talking about and being able to speed those 16th notes up just with the right hand. If you want that particular accent alternating upbeat, downbeat on the mm-hmm. corner of the hi-hat and up. And of course, because he's such a, he's just such an amazing drummer. He had an, a really incredible example. And if there's anyone listening to this, that's curious about that check out him during that talking about that specifically and he has a great technique for it to, to be able to get that higher uh, at higher bpms without burning your hand out and still have the dynamic that you're looking for that might be uh, more consistent with playing it with one hand so there is that out there yeah. that that would be an example of maybe more of a musical pursuit uh in in increasing you know uh, technique with with higher bpms and he's great with stuff yeah. like that Todd is a sweetheart, and he's a monster drummer, and I love him. He's amazing. He's uh, he's uh, he's slated to be uh, next on the list for drummer plus drummer, but we'll see what happens. But um, <laughs> I met him years ago at the NAMM show. I was just he we just bumped into each other. I didn't know him really. He and he's like, "Hey man, here's my DVD," and I'm like, "Oh cool." And I I, I took the DVD, went home, watched it, and I was like. This guy is a monster. monster. So I, I found him on the internet. I, I wrote an email saying, "Dude, I love your drumming. You are a monster player." And so monster. So we've been friends ever since. He's he's really great, really great. And yeah, I, I'm. I'll check out that thing. Another good thing when when you're talking about, uh, I mean, Picaro had a great right hand oh, on the hi hat, but e- every single Brazilian drummer I know. Mm-hmm can play wicked amounts of fast right-hand notes. Um, it's it's in the culture. Mm-hmm. Like, they can play sambas, like... Right. With their right hand, just... And then the hi-hat or the ride. 
endlessly without breaking, without adding rests or syncopations. Just it's it's. And I have a friend of mine in LA named Leo Costa, who's a great Brazilian drummer. And I asked him one day, I'm like, dude, is that just is it just practice, or you got to be born with it, or what's the deal? He's like, you know what? It's just like the same way you would play boom pa boom boom pa here in the U.S. We grew up doing that. Like that, and you your hand just gets used to that kind of muscle twitch to be able to do that effortlessly without burning out. Because you watch like heavy, heavy Brazilian samba drum kit players, and their right hand is mind blowing what they can do for for how long they can do it without slowing down, without burning out. I forgot his name. Edu Ribeiro, I think his name is. Eduardo Ribeiro, I think is a guy who's like. Just killer, killer. And, and there's so many guys who have that same technique down where they can just play on the ride or a closed hi-hat endlessly. Yeah. And, and you're like, where is that? Where are those chops coming from? <laughs> Seriously, man. Oh Definitely worth checking out. Let me ask you a little bit about the Shakira gig. Uh, I haven't spoken to too many people that maybe worked with sort of a solo, big solo pop artists so I'm definitely uh, curious about sort of picking your brain on that. Uh, tell me a little bit about getting that gig together, both uh, in regards to the actual drum set that you had to piece together, and sort of coordinating the 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 drum and how the drums and how it works with the larger show, with lights, with dancing, with all of that, and sort of working in that sort of context. Yeah, cool. That's that's a that's an in-depth question. So let me say that uh, first, I guess the gig itself I've been doing for a long time. It's let me see. We're in 2021. I started in '98. Wow, 23 years now. Wow, that's crazy. So I've yeah, so I've done several albums and tours over the years, and it has been an evolution even since I joined. Because when I first began, it was like basically almost like a rock gig Mm -hmm. like i had i had like a four-piece kit and i just played like john bonham and it it worked out fine Mm -hmm. (laughs) there uh she liked she happens to like that kind of drumming so you know it was encouraged that i played that way and it was great nice and then with each with each album more elements were added Mm -hmm. more dance songs Mm -hmm. the more dance songs meant more either sequences underneath the drums with drum loops or me hitting more pads than I used to hit, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, so adding a few samplers or samples or triggers here or there. And then it kept on getting more and more involved where there were certain songs where she wanted only electronic drum sounds and no acoustic drum sounds. So that involved me getting an electronic kit and putting it right next to the acoustic drum kit, like um, sort of like a poor man's Neil Peart. Mm-hmm. And, and then for certain songs, I would just swing over and just play the acoustic, uh, I mean, the electric parts. And she loved that because then it, would, it, would, it wouldn't sound like a guy playing, like, whatever, an electro pop song on a Bonham drum set. It would sound like the actual programming, and she right. really dug that. So I'm like, wow, this is working. So I, uh, from that point on, I always maintained that I would have to do this in a hybrid way. Mm-hmm. Her rock songs had to have real drums on them. Her electronic songs had to be using samples because she really dug the way that felt. Mm-hmm. And it's just been, and, and every tour is different. And, uh, but she, she encourages this. The musical director, Tim Mitchell, is a champion of this too. He just encourages, yeah, go, do more of that, do more of that. I love it. 
So, and then there's always an element of adding a lot of percussion too. She loves percussion instruments. So if there's ever a point where I can just hop off the drums and start playing percussion, she loves that. So it could be cajon or a djembe or dumbek or something. So nice. then that, that requires adding a few more of those things. And I would never build a kit like this on my own. <laughs> it's like, it's so, so overkill. And I'm like, God damn, my poor drum tech. But because the artist and the, and the musical director love it. I'm like, great. All right. You tell me what you want to hear on this song and I'll, I'll set it up somewhere. I'll, I'll squeeze it in somewhere. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's been a, a way of doing that, like squeezing in all the sounds they want over a, whatever it might be, an 18 song set list. And then doing it in a way where it kind of looks cool and kind of makes sense ergonomically. And that's how the evolution of the drum set evolved. you know, if, if, if I had my, my choice it would be a kick snare hat rack tom and two floors that's what i love playing right everything else was added for a specific song arrangement or something like that wow yeah i mean and then with each tour there's more technology there's more sequences and you might think i mean there are some songs that have no loops no sequences but we still run a sequencer because all the lights are automated ah. So there might be this like nice acoustic unplugged ballad, but we're still running a click track in our in-ears because all the lighting cues are, are hitting at certain times. Uh, so we basically have graduated to using uh, a, a computer sequencer in our ears. I would say 98% of the time. We're very rarely now off click. Wow. Uh, just for a few ad lib sections. She wants to do something with the audience and I'll keep a beat, you know, off click for a little while and then we'll punch it back in again. Wow. But, uh, yeah, so all that stuff is all integrated. The lights, the video, the explosions, they all run off the, the same click track that we're hearing. Mm -hmm. So it all has to be synced up that way. Wow. Pretty in-depth, no doubt about it. Sure, sure. Yeah, it's been a, a fun uh, adventure for just learning, too. Like, uh, like, yeah, just trying to keep up with gear and, and inventions and technology. It's, it's, a, it's an adventure. Absolutely, man. Uh, I know you've also worked with Perry Farrell some. Uh, have you, is, was that purely within uh, recorded contacts or was that live as well? Yeah, I started, I started for live shows. He had released a, a solo album and he was putting, putting together a band to do his solo stuff. So it wouldn't be Jane's Addiction per se, mm -hmm. but it had the same bass player, Chris Chaney's the bass player in Jane's Addiction, mm. uh, and he's also the, M the MD in his solo band. Ah. So I was contacted by him and Perry's manager to do an audition. And uh, I don't do as many auditions in L.A. as I used to because most people just either hire me or, or don't hire me. You know, <laughs> yeah. they know who I am now. Yeah. But this one was, uh, hey, Perry wants to hear a few people at SIR uh, next Monday. You want to do it? I'm like, absolutely. Yeah. I would love to come by. And what's cool, of, you know, people always think uh, cattle call, music, cattle call uh, auditions or auditions in general are below them. But it's not necessarily the case because I've been on the other side, too. I've been with an artist that wants to audition guitarists for her new tour. Mm -hmm. And she literally wants to hear four of, of our favorite guitarists and see which one sounds best on her music. And it's no slight on the other three guys, but she'll ask us, find me four guitarists and have them learn a couple songs and have them come into rehearsal next week. I would love to find someone. And they're like, cool. It's, 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 it's auditions aren't always like 
a bad thing. Like, you know, either hire me or don't hire me. I don't want to audition. I don't know about that, you know? Right. So when, when you get a call from Perry Farrell and say, would you like to come and audition? I'm like, absolutely. And not only that, but you go there and the other guys are killer drummers. Mm-hmm. So you're hanging out in a lobby with like three or four or five legends. <laughs> and you're like, I am not, I'm not upset with this. I will hang out with these guys all day. <laughs> you know, I don't mind. I don't mind losing to these guys. These guys are amazing. Wow. So that's usually what happens in, in L.A. when you go to an audition is everyone else there is also good. Mm-hmm. So it's a fun hang anyway. But the audition went really well. I think I, I hit it off with him and the band. And so I, I got that gig and we did a year tour. It was so much fun because we learned all the new songs on his album. And then he, uh, we, uh, we started adding Jane's Addiction and P- Porno Papyro songs into the set list, awesome. which I was, you know, a gigantic uh, Jane's Addiction fan as a kid. So it was fun for me. I, I, I love Stephen Perkins drumming. Oh, yeah. So that was great. And Perry's a super guy. So fun and very encouraging for me to do things differently. He would constantly say, man, you don't have to do it like like I did it in 1987. I don't want to hear it like that anymore. I'm like, all right, well, I kind of do, but okay. <laughs> like I kind of wait. I kind of want to play Mountain Song note for note. But if you want to hear it differently, I'll do I'll do it differently. Right. So, uh, but he was a lot of fun. And then after that, I did a, I did a bunch of recording for Perry too. New recordings he's going to be putting out. Nice. But yeah, it started out as a live a live gig for his solo tour. Awesome. That is that is so cool. I love it that you got to both just hang with him and, of course, revisit some of that Jane's Addiction stuff and ultimately Stephen Perkins' drum parts, both in Porno Papyrus and, of course, uh, Jane's Addiction. So that's that's too cool, man. Yeah, I, I feel very blessed that that happened because I've been fortunate enough to play with a lot of great artists. Somehow it happened, and I got to play with a lot of great artists over my career, and that's cool. But I haven't played with a lot of artists that I grew up loving. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of them are just people, this huge artist from Taiwan or huge artist from Colombia or huge artist from England that I, you know, they're great, but I didn't grow up listening to their music. But Perry Farrell, I grew up listening to his music. So this was a different thing for me. And it, it was special. Uh, we were going to do another tour this year. But ah. you know what happens. We don't have to. <laughs> but so that was one of the gigs that uh, we had. A, we had a full South American tour lined up and another U.S. tour lined uh. up. And that all that all fell through the cracks. And I was very, very bummed about that. But we'll see if that gets rebooked at some point. Yeah, man. Uh, you know, in talking to both you and uh, and Craig McIntyre, there's there's two uh, aspects of your playing and your personalities that I think has benefited you in that uh, one, I, I, th- I think your profession ability, uh, your, your sense of time, uh, your, your willingness to conform to what is happening and be excited about it. And ultimately uh, being personable and not being a pain in the ass to be around. Uh, I, I can't help but wonder uh, if there are a bunch of drummers out there that have just been practicing in their mom's basement. And if they have sort of the goals of playing with other people, if they don't establish uh, some of those uh, ability to interact with people, uh, if they don't uh, develop that, then ultimately, you know, uh, regardless of how good you are, if you're a pain in the ass to be around, people aren't going to hire you. 
I, I agree. I agree with that statement. So I think that is a correlation between both you and you and Craig uh, that that I've noticed in, in in speaking to to the both of you, which I think is a testament to to your success as well. And I think there's a lot of talk about uh, everything that is being played uh, literally with chops and whatnot, and maybe uh, not so much about being personable enough to have people want to be around you in the first place. You know. Yeah, and that's I agree. I agree, and um, that's not something that I necessarily worked on consciously. Sure. It's just I love music. I love making music with other people. It's exciting for me. It's fun. I've, I love bands. I love being in bands. So even if I'm doing a one-off with an artist I'm never going to see again, I still treat it like I'm in a band with them for the weekend. I'm like, yeah. I fly to halfway across the world to learn this person's music. And I'm like, we're a band for the next two days. <laughs> and then I n- never see him again. And I, I treat almost all of my gigs that way. Like, yeah, we're like, a, we're hanging. We're, a, we're a small gang and we're going to do this. And then when it's over, you know, great. You know, we did it. Right. And then also, you know, like, yeah, I mean, there's an expression like squeaky wheel uh, gets the grease, sure. but I, I like to say squeaky wheel gets replaced. Yeah. Because, you're right. Uh, I've been on many, many tours where a very, very talented person gets sent home because they're difficult. Right. Because they're difficult either with the other band members or with the bus driver or with the tour manager or they're rude to the females. Like, whatever it is, you know, there are way, different ways for people to get sent home for being less than stellar, uh, you know, with their personality. Yeah. So you've seen it, you see it time and time again. And people are like, Oh, what happened to that guy? He's a killer player. I'm like, what do you think happened? <laughs> he was, that guy was, that guy was a nightmare. You know, he, he totally. You, you know, you don't fire people cause they play great. Right. You know, you fire, <laughs> you know, you fire people cause, cause they cause there's something going on. Either they, or they, they can't get their organizational side together. They're always late. Right. Or they're always forgetting things or they're always forgetting the songs or yeah. it doesn't matter how great they solo. They can't come in on the right spot right. or they're in the wrong key mm-hmm. or they're just rude to everybody or prima donnas or, you got it. or, you know, they, or they're like angry drunks. You didn't know about that till the first night. And you're like, Oh, this guy's one of those angry drunks. Yeah. So you, <laughs> you find these things out and those people get eliminated and then you, they'll bring someone in who's, maybe even slightly less skilled, but is a super person. Yep. And, and everyone is so happy. They're like, oh, thank you. This guy's perfect. <laughs> because you really want someone who you can hang with. Right. You know, if they're so, they're, you're, you're on stage for two hours, and the other 22 hours you're hanging with people in airports, on buses, in dressing rooms, in hotels. So you really need people that are, you know, easygoing, uh, can get along, can roll with it. Those are qualities that are extremely important. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I think it's, you can work on it, but you just have to actually just be aware of it more than anything. Like, that, that's just the reality. Right. Very rarely is, is someone going to work for very long if they're just a complete nightmare. <laughs> Absolutely, man. And I love to hear uh, you say that at, at the uh, uh, in the upper echelons of, of sort of professional musicality. That that is that as that that's the case. Uh, so it's it's good to hear that, and I, I I want people to hear that. So thanks for uh, for clarifying all that goodness. <laughs> yeah, and that's why recommendations are are kind of tricky. Uh huh. Because when like auditions versus recommendations and things like. 
Whenever I have to recommend someone for a gig, I not only think about how well they play, I think, will they get along with that group? Mm-hmm. That, that chemistry of personalities, that whatever pay scale, that environment, that travel schedule, you know, this guy's a great bassist, but does he like the amount that that artist works? That artist does six shows a week. Will this guy be super grumpy <laughs> working six nights a week? Yeah. Or will he be totally cool with it? You know, so I think about not only the gig and the guys playing or g- girls playing, but I also think would the would everybody be happy? Mm-hmm. Would the band and artist be happy with my recommendation? And would my recommendation be happy with the gig I'm sending them to? Because you don't want either one to go bad. You want everybody to be totally in agreement like this was a great marriage. Not like, oh, I can't believe you recommended me to this horrible gig. Right. Or vice versa. <laughs> Why did you send that guitarist there? He's terrible. You yeah. know, so I really take my my recommendations seriously. And um, and uh, that's why I don't really recommend people I don't know. Sure. Like a lot of times someone will write me and say, hey, man, can you can you hook me up with that gig? I'm like, I'd love to. I don't know you. Right. I don't know how you I really I'm sorry. I don't know how you would react under all of these circumstances. Mm-hmm. I do know these other 12 guys and I do know they would all be super good at this you know mm-hmm. and i don't know you if i know you then you're going into my database my rolodex and and we're cool you know right. and uh yeah that's i don't really like youtube auditioning mm-hmm. i don't like when artists say yeah i saw this guy on youtube should we try him out i'm like <laughs> man we could but geez why don't we go with someone who's a, who's just like a like a home run like a guaranteed slam dunk why don't we go with that person mm-hmm. i suppose it, experimenting with people who just have, you know, social media accounts, you know, right. we don't know what they're like. Totally. But that, but that, that's just me. And, um, but you, you could, you could, you know, strike gold with someone on social media, but I prefer if I have a choice to go with people I already know. Absolutely. Before we go, is there anything in 2021 that you're looking forward to that you'd want to drop any info on? Or is it just uh, rinse and repeat and get through this shit and get back out there and back at it? <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, something I look forward to is get is opening up these uh, these lockdowns and, and getting life back to normal. But that is not up to me, and uh, that is up to the safety and organization of the of the people around us. Yeah. But things I'm looking forward to. Um, Musically or professionally, I I definitely have a ton of recordings I'm still working on, which I enjoy some productions and co-writing I'm doing with certain people. And I guess the other thing I'm trying to get together still is I have a ton of educational stuff I've been working on over over time. Nice. And I want to film it all and release it. Uh, So that's something that will come out sooner or later. Okay. And uh, I don't want to talk about it too much now because they're different. They're different themes, different topics, and I want to release them one at a time. Of but yeah, basically different, different educational packages of either a book or a video series that I want to get together and release at some point. Mm-hmm. So everyone that's been asking asking me about that, I apologize. It's been taking so long, but <laughs> I want to do it right. And uh, anyone who doesn't care or hasn't been asking for it. Cool. No problem. <laughs> You're we're good. Yeah. But uh, no, that, <laughs> uh, other than that, just keep on keeping on, keep on progressing in in whatever we're all working on. You know, yeah, man. Well, Brennan, it was great talking, man. I appreciate the time. Great insights. And uh, we'll have to catch up at some point in the hopefully not too distant future. 
Yeah, you know what? I, thanks for reaching out. Uh, I really enjoy uh, chatting with you. This was fun. And uh, yeah, I totally think good luck with the show and let's do this again. Absolutely, man. All right, everybody, thanks for tuning in. Thanks to Brendan for rapping. Definitely cool picking his brain about the attributes and the studying and all of the many variables that go into doing this thing for real and at a high level. And that is something that he has done, and it was super cool talking to him about it. So hope you all enjoyed it. I certainly enjoyed talking to him about it. We'll catch you on the next one. Crash, bang, boom.